You're listening to Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance, and defining happiness and success. My name's Graham Walcott. I'm your host for the show. And on this episode, I'm talking to Ray Sagayam. Ray is a senior leader in an asset management company, so works in the city and just has some really fascinating perspectives on resilience, on money, on success, on dealing with people, just so many really carefully considered bits of wisdom in this episode. I think you're going to love it. So just quickly before we get into it, a couple of quick messages. If you're a Beyond Busy keynote and you're listening to this in the first day or so of release, you still have time to sign up for our free webinar on how to beat procrastination tomorrow. Uh, it's on Friday the 16th of October at 2pm. Uh, you'll find details if you go to thinkproductive.co.uk, click on the free webinars tab and then you'll be able to find access to our free webinar on procrastination. So if you want to get involved with that, um, check it out. And also there's a few other free webinars that are underneath that, so happening over the next couple of months. So go and check them out, thinkproductive.co.uk, and you'll see the free webinars tab at the top. Um, Also, just to let you know, there's still tickets available for my Six Weeks to Ninja um, live evening course. We're starting in November, so go to graymalcott.com and you'll be able to find details for that. Um, It's basically all of the contents from my one-day masterclass that I usually do in London, but spread out over six weeks going to set you some homework, going to get you busy and just create a really good group who can hold each other to account. So if you feel like you want a productivity boost ahead of the end of the year or in this very dark winter that we're about to experience, then um, that's the place to be. So six weeks to Ninja, go to graymalcott.com and you'll find out more there. So let's get into this episode. Um, This is Ray Sagayam. I met Ray when I did some work for his company, um just about a year ago and we talk about that a little bit during the episodes um ray is just such an articulate thoughtful um interesting leader just with a lot to say and um he honestly is probably the first person who coming into the episode had like two pages of really just brilliant bullet points and i was like really at a loss of how how can i get all this stuff into the episode and so um You'll notice at the end of the episode, I actually just say to him, is there anything else? Because I just knew that there'd be like loads of stuff that he hadn't got around to saying yet. So just someone who really thinks about how to manage people, really thinks about how he does his work and just has some really great wisdom to share. So I think you're going to really enjoy this one. Here is my conversation with Ray Sagayam. I'm here with Ray Sagayam. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well, Graham. How are you? I'm good. It's a horrible day as i'm recording looking out over rain and very blustery horrible uh or very autumnal weather which isn't very nice uh, and you're in london right uh yes i'm i'm in my office in in london um in the city of london in moorgate it's a it's a pretty empty office um but but there are you know there are qu- quite a few people in the city you know maybe 30 percent of what it is on a on a usual day in a usual year uh, so there is some activity in some life but but much less than usual and does anything else feel different about it aside from the fact that there's just a lot fewer people so obviously we're recording this in a 
a sort of post lockdown, maybe pre another lockdown kind of state. Um, is there anything that just feels different about London as a as a result? Yeah, I mean, in the city, even even going out and getting my lunch, um, there are a few places which are open and doing well because a lot of the that thirty percent of business is just channeled into a few of those takeaway um, joints. But yeah. but most of the others remain closed. Um, many of the other ancillary businesses remain closed here. So it's it's a little bit of a yeah. It has a, a slightly um, odd feel about it. Um, it. It was stranger for me to go to Covent Garden uh, the other weekend. I went with my family for a meal, and and Covent Garden, which is normally um, heaving at any time of the day and and any any time of the week. Uh, was was pretty empty and it remains fairly empty and I think that's a function of the lack of tourism as well. So I think central London probably feels you know stranger the city of London getting back but but still odd. Yeah, I I took my son a couple of weekends ago to the London Transport Museum. Um he's obsessed with trains and buses and stuff. And um what was weird was the whole of London felt really quiet and everyone was wearing masks. And the only place that was busy was we walked back through Trafalgar Square and it was heaving with all these people on an anti-mask protest all just so like everyone else is wearing masks where they're all, you know, far apart from each other. And then there's this like uh, mob of people who are, you know, uh, deliberately not wearing masks, which is quite unsettling. It is quite unsettling. Yes. And and I, you know, the many occasions I'll I'll glance at a bus and of course, you you know you're supposed to wear a mask, you know, just for the mm. peace of mind of the other passengers. And I'm still staggered that so many in in, in the bus um, choose not to do that. Um, oh, really? Um, yeah. Because which, which I was look at my um, house has a bus stop outside of it, and um, pretty much everyone's wearing a mask. And so when the bus stops outside my house and I see it, which happens maybe you know a couple of times a day that's the time when I remember that we're in a pandemic because the rest of the time I can just kind of forget about it and be on with my work. But when you see the, you know, the bus looks something like out, out 28 days later or something, it kind of reminds you. Yeah. Um, but let's talk about um, your uh, career and background. So um, we met when we did some work together, uh, you know, probably about a year ago now, isn't it? Time flies. Yes. Um, but you are um, a senior uh, leader in finance. We won't give the uh, company name just for reasons of confidentiality, but um, yeah, so you work in a big a- asset management firm. Um, and it, has your career always been in finance? Has that been the uh, the predominant thing that you've done? It has since I left university. Um, I, I read economics at the LSE and, and went straight to finance because I think at that uh, stage, I, I was fairly clear in my mind what I what I wanted to go for um but as a as a teenager and most of my my life pre-university I'd always wanted to become a doctor medicine is the thing which interested me most I remember as a as a kid um spending time with some family in Malaysia and one of my uncles who's a surgeon uh, came back um to the house and brought a heart um just to 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 practice dissection and that interested wow. me. It, it, it captivated me. You know, I think I must have been yeah. you know, maybe six years old at the time. Um, and you know, I'd always had an interest in medicine. I still do, uh, but probably with a more holistic uh, tilt. Um, but then at the same time, finance also interested me. Um, in my late teens, I'd already started 
buying and selling things, just anything, things like bomber jackets, um, you know, water coolers, <laughs> mobile phones in university. There was always that desire to buy um, where I could transform and then sell. Um, yeah, and and I think that lent itself, you know, to a real passion in um, in, in the field of trading and investing, and that's what I I started to. Um, tilt my career towards um, soon after university. Um, I also read that you're the son of a diplomat. So did, did that involve a lot of moving around as a as a kid? And what was what was that like as a lifestyle? It was a great experience for me. Uh, my, my dad was a Malaysian diplomat. Um, we have Indian ancestry and, and, and both my parents were born in Malaysia. Um, so I'm Malaysian. Um, he, t- typically we would spend about three to four years in a country and then get posted to a different one. Um, I had the the privilege, the benefit um, of living in in uh, the, the United States. I was born there, um, also in Malaysia for a, for a period of time where most of our family is. Um, China for a few years, and that was also a, a wonderful experience um, as, a, as a kid. And, um, and Singapore, and, and before... Um, we we then moved to the UK and that was my father's final posting and you know I've lived there ever since so, so my formative years have been in London in the UK but but I had you know sufficient opportunity as a child uh, to to live in those different countries and for me that was uh, actually a, a great experience something I, I wouldn't um, miss out on if I if I could do it all over again. Do you think it taught you stuff that sense of having to move regularly and just experiencing lots of different cultures like what did you learn from that? I think subconsciously, yes, and the culture is the key word. The uh, you know we lived everywhere from east to to west. I have, I have three older sisters. You know, my my father also served in Vietnam um, just before the war, and in in Paris and France. Two of my sisters were born there, so they've had an even a, a broader spectrum. But but I still had the east and west, and mm. and I think it gave me that cultural, not just the familiarity, but the ease of being and assimilating in, in, in different cultural settings. Um, mm. You know, London's an interesting case in point, you know, probably the most multicultural city in the world. Um, hard to find a close second. And, and, and perhaps that's one of the reasons why I've remained here for the remainder of, of my life, uh, pr- probably because subconsciously I'm most comfortable in that multicultural setting. So London kind of is the world, isn't it? I remember in the 2012 Olympics, they made a point that it was the first time that the host city would have populations of people from every country that was competing in the Olympic Games. It's the first time that had ever happened. And I think I think there was that was even, don't quote me, but I think they even said that in the borough of Stratford, there were people from every country in the world or something. It was It was quite a remarkable statistic but i think it kind of it brings that home doesn't it that like i guess if you're so used to experiencing lots of different cultures then london is the the place to be yeah um but maybe not maybe not finance and um you know the the world of working in finance this year right maybe that's not the place to be so how has 2020 been um you know for 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 someone who's you know leading teams and um and working in finance, uh, just describe this year. What's it been like? It's been a year like like no other, and 
of course, the, when COVID was at its most acute, um, felt most acutely in, in March this year, the impact on financial markets was profound, you know, profoundly negative. But then the subsequent appreciation in the price of assets, the response by governments and central banks was was so huge, overwhelming and decisive that we had a, a V-shape, um, at least as regards financial assets are concerned. And when you look at the price of, of stocks and bonds right now, you'd almost be forgiven for thinking that nothing ever happened this year. Mm. When we know that the human impact and the toll and the personal impact has been felt uh, yeah. very differently and continues to be quite pervasive. Um, for, for me, the speed of, of how quickly this came upon us as, as an industry was, was something um, quite a significant challenge. You know, there were many asset managers, including ourselves, experienced a degree of outflows in the early months, in the months of January to March, and then subsequently lots of inflows. But that's correlated with how the market behaved as well. What do you mean by outflows and inflows? Just to So, so just in, in our funds under management, we of course have a responsibility for looking after capital on, on behalf of all of our clients. Um, when, when things are looking more pear-shaped, for want of a better word, um, there's obviously a desire on the part of the end, end client perhaps to raise cash and to to get out of those investments. So that's what I mean by outflows. And of course, inflows are when the confidence level has been restored and they start uh, reinvesting in, in the funds. For us, we didn't feel that too acutely, but but the, but the entire business felt that to some extent right um in in light with in in relation to how the market itself behaved and for all of that kind of behavior to be compressed in a fairly short um, time frame is of course destabilizing and it's destabilizing when at the same time the underlying issue is a physiological one and people are trying to readjust and adapt to a new way of working. So I'm talking about the early part of this year, just to be clear, right? Yeah, um, yeah. You know, the concept of working from home, making sure the tech tech was all fine, um, getting used to having meetings on on blue jeans instead of in person, and so on. So at the at the same time of having this sort of V shaped effect in financial markets and assets and flows, you had a much bigger and a real issue about health. Um, how do I stay healthy? How do I adjust my working day into this completely new environment? And for many people, that's been tough. Uh, it's been tough when they've had children at home, no health care, um, but they've still had to continue working. Um, so this has been a big adjustment year, um, a blessing in in some senses, and maybe we can come on to that later on. But but I think the the human adjustment was probably the more the more challenging one. So I remember when we worked together and you were spending spending a lot of time talking to your people about about key themes like how to make decisions, how to stay resilient, um, how to recognize your own biases, and all of that seems like really visionary stuff to be focused on with your team a year ago, you know, presumably not not being aware that a, a pandemic was around the corner. But it strikes me that the the world of finance, you know, you are required to work really long hours. And so there must be there must be some 
I don't know, tips and tricks, or there must be an approach around resilience and keeping your brain and keeping decision-making on an even keel, even when you're working long hours. Um, so I'm just wondering what you feel are some of the sort of key um, approaches to that that really work, that really allow you to to work those long hours and still uh, make a difference and be productive in the work that you do. Yeah, thanks, Graham, for, for, the, for the comment. Yes, of course, I had no... Uh, foresight and certainly no inside information <laughs> about the the pending virus um but it was helpful that we had that discussion the issues which we face in our industry i think are issues we face beyond the world of finance the most industries if not all uh, these days uh, are operating um with a high level of expectations a high level of efficiency and I think many individuals in, in many industries feel that they're doing the work of two individuals, um, which is a little bit ironic given that we're supposed to be uh, more technologically adept and more, more, more efficient. But anyway, that's a different matter. So I think, you know, my first point is the concept about uh, tips around resilience, uh, I would like to think apply beyond the world of finance. Very often there's a misunderstanding and a misconception that it's all about time management and for me, it's not so much about time management. Time management is the icing on the cake. But the elephant in the room is your energy levels and how you really feel, right? Yeah. And how you feel physically and mentally drive that resilience, right? When you've had a good night's sleep, when you've, when you've had a, a good diet, you've eaten well, you've rested well, you feel fresh the next day and capable of of taking anything on, and that's what confers the resilience. Um, you know, you may kid yourself and think, okay, let me shorten my meetings, let me cut down my number of meetings, and so on. But as I say, that those are helpful tools, but sequential. They they are they are a bit the icing on the cake. So then the question is, how do you feel better and how do you feel more energetic? And I think there you have to move away from the day-to-day of of work and, and focus on things like sleep and sleep quality. And I talk about quality here more than quantity, um, about how you look after your mind. You know, the mind is like your body. It needs to be exercised and then rested. You know, it's the same as working out. You work out um, intensively and then you rest and then your body adapts to that. Um, nutrition is is so important and, and goes hand in hand um, with our mental state and sleep. So I think those are three aspects I'd, I'd love to focus on and happy to elaborate on that if you wish. Yeah. Tell me more about the sleep thing. So you mentioned the quantity versus quality of sleep and the, the quality being more important. And I always think of sleep in terms of the number of hours, right? So tell me about that. I've had a mixed relationship with sleep over the years. I've not been, always been the best sleeper, um, but really uh, after many years of looking into this, and understanding how it can be improved, um, something you know called sleep hygiene. So many of the things which I'm, I'm sure many of the listeners and yourself would already be familiar with, you know, no screens after a certain time, putting your blue light filter on, um, you, you're only using your bed, um, you know, for, you know, for, for, for sleep and, and so on. Um, that, that's all sleep hygiene. Again, for me, those are small steps which in aggregate can make a big impact you know other things other examples of that would be the avoidance of alcohol in the evening and caffeine and 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 so on but i think many people know about that and still experience 
um, bad sleep. So partly it's an implementation issue. Many people also know about that and still have a beer in the evening right, as well. So exactly. Have coffee. And that's what I mean by an implementation issue. So they know about it, but they still transgress and, and my, myself included. But the, the biggest revelation for me, really the biggest one, and I think if, if I had to pick one factor which can really influence and enhance your sleep, is the concept of going to bed and rising at the same time, mm. even at weekends. Yeah. So as much as you want to have a line at the weekends, but it's about, it's a, it's, it's all about the body clock and conditioning or reconditioning your body uh, to that clock. And that's the most powerful influencer I feel on, on sleep and, and something which of course I've experimented on myself throughout my life and, and these years. So going to bed and rising at the same time, even at the weekends, um, initially the, the, the concept here would be to start with fewer hours, not more. If you think, oh, you know, I, I'm getting up at six in order, in order to get a, you know, good night's sleep and to be rested. I've, I've got to go to bed at 10 or 10.30. That's not the way you should approach it. Actually, you know, it's fine to, to go to bed at 12 or 1, still get up at 6. Now, you may feel a bit groggy in the morning, mm. but you're more likely to have deep and quality sleep because your desire to sleep at that time would be much greater than perhaps at 10 or 10.30. Yeah, like I, I would struggle with that from the point of view of, I I really always feel like I need a good seven or eight hours, at least seven hours, um, and preferably eight. You know, um, and I also like my early morning, so I do tend to when I'm in that cycle of things, just go to bed quite early. So you know, nine sometimes, you know, by ten at the latest, kind of thing. So I would struggle with that experimentation to to reduce the number of hours. So, like, is that something that you would? When you first started doing it like that, were you were you feeling like you needed more sleep and you were tired, and and did it change? It, it's part of the approach of resetting the clock, right? So you start with the fewer hours, and then you realize as you need more, and then you 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 widen the bands a little bit, and then you you sleep mm. a little bit earlier, and then you 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 stick to that for a week, and and so on. Um, so that's just a starting point if you need to reset the clock, so to speak. But coming back to your point. It's fine. I mean, you need, you know, Graham Olcott needs eight hours and that's okay. And, and for me, that may be seven hours or six and a half hours. We're different and our bodies also need different amounts of sleep. So I think that's another misconception that there's a sort of a, an ideal amount. You know, we have a range which we know is, is, is probably good for us. But within that range, there can be a, lo- a lot of dispersion and there is a lot of dispersion. Um, so you're, you're a bit less than eight hours then, are you? I think I used to be eight, but but now it's probably more like seven. So I'm not far off you, I think. And that's good that you're, you know, prioritizing it to that level as well, right? When presumably you're you're working quite quite a, a, a long week in terms of just the number of hours and uh, amount of time that you're that you're away from home. Yeah, I mean, the work intensity was always there in 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 my field, and and I think in many senses it's been compounded by having to do those same engagements and meetings over a, a, a virtual a format can be very tiring to have the same duration of a meeting virtually on, on, on Zoom or on Blue Jeans um, as it is in person. So I, I think this year certainly made me more, more aware of this and, and take this topic a lot more seriously, both for myself 
and also, um, you know, other people in my team as well, I think feel the same way. Um, so just moving away from sleep. So you mentioned nutrition and mind there. So, um, what are your kind of key rules for the road there in terms of keeping you fresh? Mind, you know, coming back to my point, um, earlier, it has to be rested, um, not only exercised, there are many ways of doing that and disconnecting uh, meditation, of course, is something which is increasingly gaining uh, traction for all the right reasons here. Um, you know, the goal of meditation is not to empty your mind, but it's to regain control of your mind. Very often we're the prisoner of our thoughts and we go to bed with our heads swimming of thoughts and ideas and, and visions and so on. And, and I think the, the, the power of meditation, it's not the only way, is, is to allow for that essential and that necessary reset um, of that mind and, and, and to allow us to function uh, optimally the, the following day. And the nutrition for me is, is a big aspect. Um, you know, having the right kind of water and gut health is key. In Eastern medicine, there's a huge focus on gut health as a, reflect, uh, as a reflector of our overall well-being. You know, we often think about having butterflies um, if we are nervous or we're thinking about something, but the transmission mechanism between our brain and our gut goes in both directions. And if we don't look after what we're eating, um, that can impact our mental well-being and our mental state. Um, there are many um, studies but which show that a large number of individuals who've been diagnosed with anxiety and stress conditions um, have had poor digestion in the lead up. It's a common symptom in the lead up to that uh, diagnosis. And, and I don't think that's by, by accident at all. Um, so I think, you know, paying attention, um, to, 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 you know, nutrition is very important. Um, and, and of course, digestive health, um, is driven by what we eat and intolerances as adults. We are much more likely to develop intolerances, which we didn't have when we were younger. So for me, that's something which um, can be tested and should be tested. It doesn't cost much, you know, less than 80 pounds, and you, you can do a hair or a, a small blood sample, but you can understand very quickly what you're intolerant to. And by eliminating that for a short period of time, um, it allows your body again to heal um, and, and to restore stability on your gut again. So I'm sorry for going on about this one. I, I know you're about to interject with the question, Graham, but <laughs> I had to finish. You know, gut health important and obviously pay attention to food intolerances, um, I think, alongside. Yeah, I was also just going to say my own experiences around nutrition and um, a few years ago, really upping my energy levels was was just a huge revelation. And um, I ended up co-authoring a book with Colette Hennigan, which is actually, um, we're just going to re-release it in, um, in January. Uh, it's called How to Have the Energy. So probably by the time this comes out, that will be available on Amazon to pre-order, but yeah, it's called How to Have the Energy. If you want to check that out, and um, yeah, totally agree with everything you, that you've just said there. Excellent, um, thank you. Let's move on and talk about um, a couple of key values for you. And this really came out of when we worked together. Is you talked to me a lot about these two key values of hard work and humility, and I just really like that juxtaposition and, and combination, but. Love to know more about how those landed for you as really key values, and also how do you espouse those when you're leading and managing people? There are many traits which are desirable in others and in ourselves, and I 
I've reflected on this for a period of time, and I've tried to distill them into these two traits, the, the, the ones you mentioned, uh, Graham, hard work and humility, mm. because I feel that from those two, so many other sub-traits follow. You know, our world is run by individuals who are not all geniuses, and that's not a bad thing. It, it, it's just about how you run and manage businesses and individuals, and you don't need to be a genius to do that. So I think um, softer skills matter more than absolute levels of intelligence. Um, mm. It's probably one starting point I make. Um, and I think that just the concept of, of, of working hard, but, but also acknowledging that you don't have all the answers and you want to surround yourself by people who can compliment you and have those answers, I think can get you a, a very long way. And when I've, I've interviewed so many hundreds of people over the years for various roles in our organization and other organizations I've worked with. And, and for me, those are the two traits, which if I really identified what drew me towards those individuals, it probably comes down to those two factors, which I think ultimately drive their potential and their success in, in the field and in the organization. I mean, other than just getting a general sense, is there anything in terms of how you interview people, you know, little techniques or particular questions that really draw those, those things out? To get to the bottom of those traits, you've got to go fairly personal in the interview content and style, which of course these days is sometimes precarious ground. Um, so, so there is a little bit of, um, diplomacy and skill required in that. But, but I think in an interview process, you're not the only individual interviewing the candidate. There are many other people interviewing, uh, the candidate and, and you know that there's going to be a, a, a fairly thorough analysis done of the, if you like, the technical skills and the technical suitability for the role. Also by yourself, you know, it's not something, if everyone delegates that to the other person, then no, no one's going to cover that ground. Yeah. But I think there has to be a good component in that meeting to touch on softer aspects, to touch on the person and the human. And for me, that's probably the most important aspect of the interview. Mm. I'm, I'm surprised it surprises them, but it's still, till this day, it surprises many. And I don't want to use the word candidates because for me, it's not so much about an interview, it's a meeting and it's a meeting to assess mutual fit and suitability, not just about us assessing their fit, but also just as important to ensure that they're making the right decision and for the right uh, right reasons. One of the other things that I read about you that was really interesting was um, your background was that you have a master's in Catholic theology and also your wife is Buddhist as well. So just wondering whether there's a sense of spirituality for you in the way that you approach work as well and just where you see that sort of crossover of, of those two ideas. Yes, I, my, my wife is Buddhist and um, I'm, I'm a practicing Christian and, and so, so are our kids. Um, I also come, or my parents come from Malaysia and Malaysia is a predominantly Muslim country. I also have a brother-in-law um, you know, who was Hindu as well. So the the concept of this this multi faith um, dimension is is not new to me or my family, and it's something I think we've always embraced 
from the get-go, um, which I think is, is quite important to, to me and also how we, we raise our kids. Mm. Spirituality for me goes beyond a set of guiding principles. For many, it's no more than that, and that's fine, right? And perhaps that's the bridge which links the secular and the more organized uh, faith, right? That there's a lot of commonality in terms of values and guiding principles, and that's a good thing. Yeah. For me, it goes a little bit further than that. And I'd, I'd almost like to use an analogy to help explain it. And I say help because we're entering realms of things which are difficult to explain and difficult to put into words. I often think of elite athletes, you know, top golfers, top uh, sports people, as, as a good analogy here, because those individuals have mastered their mind and their body, not just their body, but also their mind, you know, the total utter focus um, when doing what they do. But many of them, and some of them for sure, uh, not attained a state of, of happiness, right? And, and where is that void in their lives? You know, I don't want to necessarily cite any specific examples, but I think anyone listening, I'm sure will be able to think of some good examples. Um, so they've mastered their mind and their body, but what's missing? And for me, that aspect, and that's just my belief, right? That aspect is perhaps there's a spiritual dimension which is missing. And that's why, you know, for me, that aspect goes beyond a set of guiding principles. Um, I say that not from a, a point of virtuosity. It's just based on what works for me, what I value and what I was given as, as a child and what I continued, um, to hold dear to my heart. Um, but, but I have to emphasize the point in virtuosity. You know, very often it can be confused. As a practicing Christian, I'll use the analogy, but the church for me is, is for sinners. It's not for saints. If I was a saint, I wouldn't need to go to church. And, and that's the way I look at it. Well, it feels like we're getting into the realms of how do you define happiness? And obviously the, I suppose the first, there's loads I can ask you about, um, this, but I think the first question I want to ask you around that, just obviously as someone who works in finance is, do you think money can buy happiness? Money definitely won't buy you happiness, but having or attaining a state of happiness first and foremost may actually help you get more affluent if that's a goal of yours. Yeah. So it's the concept of what, what drives success, right? Is happiness a consequence of being successful or is happiness, and that's my assertion, the starting point, which then potentially drives success in our many different definitions of success. Mm. And I, I firmly believe it's that way around. And it's the same as productivity and happiness, right? Like people always have this belief that if I just get way more productive and I just get the next two promotions or my business does X, Y, Z, then that productivity will lead to my happiness. And people look at happiness as being the sort of goal at the end of the rainbow. And actually it's totally the other way around, right? So you're much more likely to drive high levels of productivity and success if you start from a place of happiness, right? Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. When you're happy, when you're energetic, you don't look at the clock. You don't think, oh, I've got somewhere else to be, but you just immerse yourself heart and soul into whatever you're doing. Uh, so I couldn't agree with you more. And look, it's, it's easier said than done. You know, the, the next question would be how, how, how do I get happy? How, how do I, 
how you know how can I be happy? And you know, for me, if if happiness is out of reach, aim for contentment. Mm. Far easier and a hundred percent likely. I guarantee you, if the goal is contentment, you'll get it, and you can get it in an instant, and just by by shifting your state of mind. And I think if you shift that state of mind in a in a in a more um, practice or an experienced manner, that contentment may actually morph into happiness. Who knows? But but aim for contentment, and that's a much more achievable goal. I often think of those two things as, um, I mean, I, I think I just think about contentment as being almost like my definition of happiness. Do you know what I mean? I think sometimes people people's definition of happiness is much more along the lines of happiness is, uh, you know, this kind of uh, you know, material success or this kind of lifestyle or this kind of feeling even, you know, and actually just feeling that you are present and in the moment and grateful and, and therefore content. Like for me, that's, that's the main thing to aim for anyway. Right. I think you're right. Perhaps I should evolve myself in that thinking. I still have a bit more of a classical and, and I think it's linked to phraseology. I think of contentment, in a, in a certain realms and happiness is perhaps being a more exacerbated version of that. But I think the way you described it is probably the, the more philosophical and the more, more, more mature way. So I, I, I buy into your, your way of oh, thinking. Well, thank you. <laughs> I think for me, it's like, it's contentment. And then also you want regular periods of feeling flow in whatever you're doing. Right. So yes, yes. Flow for me is, uh, you know, watching a, really boring three-hour baseball game <laughs> which I just find endlessly fascinating and I get lost in it and you know flow might be you know riding your bike or or whatever so you, so I think you need that too like I, I know I certainly do um but flow and contentment I think it's the for me that's the formula you've sold me on this <laughs> so let me ask you a bit more about success so you obviously work in a an industry where you're surrounded by lots of money and high salaries and uh, people people that can afford nice cars and that kind of thing. Do you feel like there's a um, do you feel like that has an influence on the way people see success, or does it go the other way and people end up much more philosophical? Like, just interested to kind of think about um, you know like that influence that money can have on how we think about success. I'm not sure I can shed more light on this. You know, I think the the compensation in the industry is is probably commensurate with the with the nature and the intensity of work um i don't feel that it's the primary motivator and driver if i'm really honest with you um i i think there's a a sense and a feeling of being paid what's fair for for the role for the for the results uh, for the output but but if you asked me if i understand your question correctly if if that's if I think if that's the primary motivator or driver, I definitely don't think that's the case. Um, I think it's almost a baseline consideration, but for, for motivation to occur, that really has to come from the career and the job satisfaction and the potential to have an impact um, on the team and the organization. And I think those factors matter much more to the individuals that I deal with um, than the monetary reward. Do you think do you think like people's view of success is is very much based on them doing a good job then or do you think people have um particular views of success that are based on reaching a particular end goal or something like that I definitely think there's a highly varied concept around success and and you ask 
two individuals, you're going to get two very different answers. But that's because success is also a very personal thing. Uh, you know, for me, I would have de- defined success in a more classical context in the earlier part of my career. And I define it very differently now in, in maybe softer aspects. So there isn't a, a homogenous answer to that. I think people in the earlier stages of their career, and I, I appreciate I'm generalizing here, will tend to value career structure, um, titles, maybe some monetary um, aspect uh, to, to, to move along with that, um, probably value that to a greater extent because that's a very clear reflector and a barometer of their output um, and their input as well. But but that does change. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I, I definitely feel like in the first, certainly in the first five years of my career and probably probably actually then that felt that influence for a lot longer. But in the first few years, I was just so astounded that anyone had given me a job. (laughs) So I felt like in the first few years, I have to work really hard and I need to achieve certain levels of success for me in order that I'm not going to end up on the sort of employment scrap heap. You know, it was almost like if I lose this job, then I'll be totally screwed, you know. And it was a, a really long time before I got to a place where I didn't feel that sense of imposter syndrome and didn't feel like, you know, I, everything I did was me having, it was all on the line. I had it all to prove. Like it took me a long time really to sort of, to shift that in terms of my own career, I think. I think you hit the nail on the head in the earlier, earlier part of our careers. There's a desire and a necessity even to reflect that capability of ourselves. So we're trying to prove ourselves. Mm, yeah. Whereas perhaps, not always the case, but perhaps at a later stage, as as one gains a self, uh, a sense of, um, a different sense of, of confidence perhaps and, and reassurance, perhaps even within the organization, that shift away from yourself towards others and and allowing others room to to be that reflector perhaps is there. Maybe that's what it is. Mm. Maybe it's a natural evolution of, of that um, career. I know when we spoke, you're a big fan of Stephen Covey and Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Um, just wondering if you have any, maybe the uh, the eighth and the ninth and the tenth habits, but just other things that you think are really important in terms of, you know, things that you see successful people doing and, you know, the sort of the traits or behaviours that um, you've really noticed from highly successful people. If I remember one takeaway from Stephen Covey's book, um, the one you just mentioned, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, it's about the habitual nature of ca- a character. You know, we think of character as something innate, and that's not necessarily true. It, it may be day one, but it can be changed and cultivated and, and honed in in a different direction. Um, Aristotle says we are, we are habitually we are what we habitually do, right? Mm, uh, yeah. As a big fan of martial arts, I think of what Bruce Lee said, you know, it takes 10,000 kicks to master it in the first place, right? So this concept of, of habit leading to mastery, self-mastery, but even extrapolating to qualitative dimensions as character, something which I, I believe um, fairly strongly on. You also said something to me about there's the people who come with problems and then there's people who come with solutions. Um, yeah, tell me more about that. It's important and it's it's important when you can consider the mind's eye of the other person. If 
it, it staggers me how many people, um, experienced individuals even, come to the table with a with a list of problems, and that's fine. But if you're coming to the table with a list of problems, presumably you've also thought about the accompanying solution as well. And and when you look at the subset of individuals who come to the table with the problem and the solution, it's a surprisingly small percentage. And I think mm. that's why it's quite a defining feature in our workplace. And again, that's one of those things that over the years, I'm sure you kind of spot who's doing that regularly and and you know sort of no- notice those traits fairly innately. It, it's easy to spot, but it's also something you've got to live and breathe yourself as well. It's something I've always felt was essential yeah. because otherwise, I mean, how can you expect the other person to be fully engaged and receptive? You, you know, but if you if you come up with some ideas, even if those ideas are not the ones which are ultimately taken. It, it just shows that you've you've given full consideration and care to the matter, and then you're not just dumping this and, and sort of delegating that that responsibility. I, you know that does not work for me. It never has. Yeah, um, and we're sort of leading into an area here about, I guess, managing people, and feels like that's been a very important part of your career and your success is just the ability to to manage and lead in the right way. So. I'd love to hear what some of the things are that you've learnt over the years about how you best manage people. The list is long, but let me try and cherry pick a few things which come to mind, uh, Graham. Um, the, the the first, the most important thing is also how you perceive the other individual. You know, if, and I'll I'll just take one example here. If your starting point is from a vantage point of judgment, you know, is that employee lazy or, or lacking in hard work. The other way of looking at it is, is that person lacking purpose, right? So this concept of l- lack of work ethic or lack of purpose, I think is a very important point. And I think as a starting point, you've got to assume that if they're, for whatever reason, they're subpar, give them the benefit of the doubt. It's almost like innocent until proven guilty. Use the lack of purpose as a starting point and try to understand what motivates, what drives them in order to solve for that. Now, it, it may reach a point where it is fundam- fundamentally untenable and you have to part company, but but that's fine. But only once you've really, in your mind, framed or reframed it um, to give them the benefit of the doubt in the first place. I think that's a very important point. It's quite a subtle point. It reminds me of that thing in facilitation, actually, where uh, facilitators have a little saying, which is there's no such thing as a difficult person, just a person who hasn't had their needs met yet. There you go. It's, um, it's, it's also, you know, you can extrapolate that, that concept with children, you know, do you praise the effort or the outcome? Right. Very often we think of things in a very conventional sense. Let's just look at the outcome in black or white terms. But actually it's the effort and what goes into it and that sense of drive, which, which I would argue is, is probably, but, but, but I'm detracting a little bit. To come back to your question, I think there are two other aspects which come to mind. Um, and that's more in the conveyancing and the approach of leadership. Uh, The first thing, um, there is directness and diplomacy. I think we touched on that at the offsite we we shared together when you very kindly spoke um, and engaged my whole team in Rome last year before the lockdown. But the importance of both of those attributes, um, you master both 
and you'd be effective in most situations, in my view. You know, the truth, and I'm going to quote you, Graham, I think you've, you've said in the past, the truth is often hard to hear, but needs kindness. Very often, some of us are very direct or too diplomatic, but it's the confluence of the two, calibrating it in the right way, which I think is a key key metric of success and also defines um, str- strong leaders and strong leadership. Yeah. The, the last aspect is something as simple as communication and how we convey a message. Um, I remember uh, another individual who spoke at the offsite, Daniel Crosby, who, who uh, a wonderful uh, individual who wrote a book uh, called The Behavioral Investor. Yeah, we've had him on the podcast actually as well. So um, we'll put a link to that episode uh, in the show notes. Please yeah. do. But, you know, I remember Daniel said something which really resonates with me, which is writing and speaking, it forces you to simplify a concept and to understand it better. Only when you can convert something which, which is very complex into simple words, can you truly show that you've understood it? And mm. and and writing and speaking forces you to do that. But the the point I'm also trying to make here is the articulation and conveying a message concisely and with clarity is, is also very key in, in my industry and also beyond. Um, and, and I think that's an important point. It's also an important point to gain trust, to foster trust um, yeah. and in, in leadership circles as well. That thing you're just saying about how writing and speaking crystallizes your thoughts. So pr- this is probably my most, the, the most helpful piece of writing advice I've ever, I've ever been given um, was something that I really, I see in my own writing all the time. And basically what, what you want in a paragraph is the first sentence of the paragraph to summarize what the rest of the paragraph is going to be about. And what I notice often when I'm writing a first draft is the last sentence that I'm writing in that paragraph, I end up moving to be the first sentence. And that's because, you know, you're in the middle of your, your sort of thought flow and you get the idea out. And then usually what you're doing is you're kind of summarizing that idea and that thought with the last sentence of the paragraph. But like it actually makes it read better if you just move that last sentence to the start and have that at the start. And like that really is the illustration for me of that point of the more you express those ideas in a kind of, you know, public facing out outwardly facing way, rather than it just being in your head, the more it crystallizes, right? It's a great tip, really. We we have a few more minutes left. I'd love to just talk about productivity and work-life balance before we finish. Um, sure. Uh, and then I'm going to ask you about uh, what your alternative career would be if if you okay. didn't end up in uh, in in finance. So um, productivity and work life balance. I, I suppose we've talked a bit about resilience, right? Um, but I'd love to hear a bit more about kind of how you switch off and um, the things that you do to sort of draw those boundaries, particularly um, you know for people working from home, and then a bit more about productivity as well. So should we start with the work life balance thing? Like how do you, how do you switch off? If you asked me this question two years ago, I would have said, I would have given you a long list, like, you know, a nice deep tissue massage, doing yoga, going to the gym, um, lying down in the sauna, shooting, target shooting, something like that, right? So very much a concrete list of to-do things. Yeah, I'd, I'd modify my answer a little bit. I mean, those are certainly things I enjoy doing and help me decompress, but they only help me decompress if I'm fully present I'll take the example of a massage. Um, very often when I'm having a massage, I will speak to the therapist. You know, I just feel it's a friendly thing to do and 
just sort of makes me feel better to do that rather than just, you know, lying there, you know, like a sort of a dead fish. But, but I can tell you a, a good therapist will tell you after about 15 or 20 minutes politely to be quiet and to stop talking. And, and for me, that's actually a very good gauge on, on an experience and a very good therapist, someone who's, who's going to be willing and confident enough to tell you that. Yeah. But, but again, you, you, you won't enjoy the massage until you're fully immersed and, and disconnected, right? With all of those activities. So for me, the best way to decompress is, is really being present. But I gave you tangible examples of some recreational um, hobbies, if you like. Um, what's your key rule for productivity? Meeting efficiency is something I'm quite passionate about. Our meetings will fill the space we allow them to fill. If you if you schedule one hour, it'll be an hour. If you schedule half an hour, it'll be that. Um, I think if there's one blessing from this whole COVID experience and the functionality of working from home, etc., it's the um, reminder that we are able to have far more efficient meetings in half the time, a third of the time. Um, it's it's wonderful what you can achieve in twenty or thirty minutes instead of the full hour. So so for me that that's a, a key, you know, a key. I don't want to say the word realization, but I think it's a key a key fact of of greater efficiency. Um, and then if you weren't working in finance and you had an alternative career, if you could start again, do something else. What would you do? <laughs> I would probably work with the with the UFC, the the Ultimate Fighting Championship. Um, I, I appreciate this may come out of left field. Um, I, I've I've always uh, loved the, the the discipline, the confidence, the skill which come from uh, the beauty and the variety of different martial arts from around the world. I've I've practiced many myself uh, since I was a teenager, mm. and um, I. I never stayed with each one long enough to get a black belt, but that was intentional because I realized very early on that you can achieve uh, the bulk of the the skill set in the first couple of years, and then it takes many more years to to reach those those marginal um, skills, if you like. So by trying different ones for two years at a time, I think I picked up a good, a good suite of of you know fun and interesting skills. Um, interestingly enough, this whole concept of mixed martial arts MMA really only gained traction in the past two decades, in the past, in, in particular in the past decade. And the UFC is is the is, if you like, the the the, the organization which dominates and monopolizes um, the sport, but but also does an amazing job of it. You know, led by some very visionary individuals. You know, Dana White and the Fatita brothers the story behind the UFC and, and really how it uh, got resurrected and, 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 and is probably one of the most, uh, the fastest growing sports in the world right now is, is, is a fascinating one in itself and perhaps a subject of a different conversation. But I would say mm-hmm. if I wasn't in finance now, um, that's, that's probably where I'd be, uh, given that I would have uh, probably passed up on the opportunity to become a doctor. So would you, would you have been in the cage or you'd have been outside writing about it or doing something else i'll leave that one for you to figure out (laughs) (laughs) um maybe in the cage recreationally um (laughs) but but you know just being me i guess being being part of it um you know i I, the the finance we we talked earlier about this there there are parallels um in in the world of finance with with many other industries in the real world interesting 
Um, we've covered a lot of ground, hey? <laughs> so it's been um, really lovely having you on the podcast. Um, usually at the end, the final word is for our guest to uh, just you know, say what they, uh, you know, sort of draw the listeners attention to something they're promoting or how they can connect to whatever. And obviously you're, you're on here, um, slightly anonymously. Um, so I'm going to give you a slightly different end point, which is just, is there anything else that you'd like to, to share with, um, the listeners before we finish? Thank you. Thank you for leaving it open-ended. There is, there is something, um, I, I would love to share, which is, um, a recent discovery, another discovery in this in this period, and it's called um, in Japanese. They have a word for it. The word is shinrin yoku, which means forest bathing, and it's something which I never really did before. We are lucky enough to live in a part of London um, not far from some forestry, different to open fields, and um, I developed this affinity thanks to my wife and my son who. Um, who went there a few months ago and um, asked me to join them as well, and and I have to say it's been it's been an amazing experience. The air is is totally different. Uh, freshness doesn't even describe it. You know, I think being surrounded by dense forestry it, it releases uh, negative ions in the air, and, and it just um, makes for a, a healthy and a refreshing feeling. And um, I just cannot recommend it um, more highly if you are. Uh, fortunate enough to be near forest and if you're not try it out and and you'll see it's a very different experience to to walking uh, for example in the open air so forest bathing bathing shinrin yoku um is my top tip that's really nice i, I actually a couple of weekends ago just went and wild camped in some woods here in brighton which was just the waking up in the morning was such a lovely experience of just being surrounded by the forest and trees and yeah absolutely lovely um, what a lovely note to end on. So, Ray, thank you so much for being part of Beyond Busy. Um, My pleasure. On here and, My pleasure. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure people will really enjoy this conversation. So thank you. I appreciate it, Graham. So thanks so much to Ray for being on the podcast. Thanks also as ever to Mark Stedman, my producer on the show, and to Emily for all of her work behind the scenes uh, making all this happen. Um, you can find the show notes and everything else as always at getbeyondbusy.com. And as I say, if you're interested in being part of Think Productive's free webinars series, just go to thinkproductive.co.uk Click on the free webinars thing at the top and you'll find details of the future uh, events, uh, most of which are going to be run by me personally, actually. So I'm really looking forward to getting involved with these. So the first one is the 16th of October, how to stop procrastinating tomorrow. Uh, we're doing one on how to say no at work. I'm going to do one on the productivity of kindness for World Kindness Day. So loads of really interesting topics coming up. And if you have thoughts and suggestions for topics you'd like to see, you can email me just graham at thinkproductive.co.uk. And the final thing I'm going to say is I am really upping my game in terms of marketing and LinkedIn, Instagram, all that stuff. So if you're not following me on Twitter and Instagram, it's just at Graham Alcott. Uh, go and check it out there. We share lots of quotes from these episodes as well as lots of other stuff. So um, at Graham Alcott on Instagram and Twitter, or just add me on LinkedIn. Um, pretty easy to find on there. So um, would love to uh, have your connection on there. I actually wrote a thing for my weekly newsletter all about 
my pet peeves of LinkedIn. Um, and uh, we've put that up on, on LinkedIn and on the blog as well. Um, just honestly, some of the connection requests and just how inauthentic and sort of sleazy a lot of it is. Oh, just horrible. Um, but yeah, if you, and also, by the way, if you want to be part of that, then if you go to graymalcott.com uh, and there's like a little thing, you know, little uh, thing you can fill in, little form you can fill in to be part of my weekly mailing list. So every Sunday I send out this email, rev up for the week. And it's basically just one positive idea dropped into your inbox every Sunday at four o'clock um, to set you up for the week ahead. So if you want to be part of that, graymalcott.com, go and sign up there. And all of that's kind of new this year. I've really been um, changing how I deal with Instagram and Twitter and all that kind of stuff this year. I've set up this mailing list, Rev Up for the Week, which is uh, just growing really nicely and really enjoying the process of having to come up with something new and original every Sunday to a deadline. It's um, it's really upping my game as a writer as well, which is really great. Uh, so I'd love you to be part of that and just help me to grow that list even further. So graymalcott.com, check that out. That is it for this episode. We'll be back next week with another one. We've got some really incredible guests lined up over the next few weeks. So stay tuned, say subscribe, give me a like, uh, give us a review, all that good stuff too. And we'll see you next week. Take care. Bye for now.